You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. There's a scary tendency you find in human societies. You find it across nations, across cultures, religions, centuries, social classes. It may have its roots in our primate ancestors, something we see today in chimpanzees called coalitionary aggression. Anthropologist Rene Girard explored it in something called mimetic theory or the scapegoating mechanism. It's this tendency of human beings who form groups to then divide their in-group, to find some minority within their in-group that the majority then begins to bully or pester or pick on or insult or marginalize. What tends to happen is the majority calls itself clean and this minority they call unclean. Um, the, The majority is acceptable, the minority is unacceptable. The majority is normal and the minority is queer or odd or different or Uh, some other epithet. The majority eventually creates a kind of coalitionary aggression against the minority. Uh, And uh, in so doing, they make themselves feel good. They make themselves feel superior. They make themselves feel clean and righteous. And they unite themselves because now they've created a common enemy close at hand. Two quick examples from American history. While white Americans were maintaining the segregated South and maintaining a segregated North, too, um, they, they were not preoccupied with facing their own racial uh, problems. Instead, they were engaging in prohibition where alcohol was seen as the great enemy and alcoholics were the big problem. And they were engaged in a a long struggle against evolution. This, by the way, is not only the period of maintaining the Jim Crow South, but it was a period uh, during which uh, horrible atrocities were being done to Native uh, Americans. And and it's as if uh, it's almost a method of distraction to distract ourselves and others from these terrible things we're doing. We'll find something we can call dirty so we and the majority will feel clean. I suppose I feel this intensely because I live in Florida and something very similar is going on here today. Florida has an ugly racial history, the highest per capita uh, number of lynchings um, from the era of lynchings in the early 20th century. Still, uh, we have an incredibly problematic law called Stand Your Ground Law that is in some ways a carte blanche for people in the racial majority, the white majority, to, uh, to inflict violence upon minorities. Here we have this ugly history, but uh, what, do, what are we doing now? We're uh, requiring our school teachers to not talk about that ugly history. And instead, uh, we, our political leaders are focusing their attention on transgender children and on drag queens as if they're the big moral problem facing our state. Now, look, this goes to extreme levels in cases we all know about. By creating a clean majority and a dirty minority, by just using that binary language of clean and dirty, 
we create the conditions for ethnic cleansing. So in Rwanda, um, the majority uh, uh, Hutu tribe called the minority Tutsi tribe who had possessed the majority of political power, so there was deep resentment against them. They called them cockroaches so that the act of attempted genocide was really portrayed as pest control. Those are extreme examples. But closer to home, we see stories of purification going on in our politics, in our church politics, in our business power dynamics, in our families, even in our own psyches. When we're feeling guilty about something, when we're feeling tense about something, it really helps to find someone else to project our anxieties upon and to make ourselves feel innocent, pure, and clean. Welcome everyone to this uh, fifth season of Learning How to See. We've been going through a series of common stories that we're trying to learn to see in our lives and in our cultures. And today we're talking about the third of these six common stories, the purification story. Gareth, what are your thoughts on this story as we get started? Well, the first thing is a, is a memory of uh, a Bible study that uh, a friend of mine told me about when we were teenagers. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was a study of that, the, the story of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, uh, I think. You're, you'll correct me if my biblical memory is flawed, which it's it's very flawed, where I think there's this thing where like the Pharisee goes and makes this this big show of his goodness before God and the tax collector throw it is a tax collector, right? He throws himself on the mercy right, of, yes. of God. And the, the Pharisee says, I thank you, God, that I am not like that tax collector, right? And, um, uh, and the parable is about, um, you know, when you externalize your own brokenness, the the shadows in you onto other people you're moving away from what it is to be a full human you're moving away from the image of god and my friend told me that he'd been to this wonderful bible study that had been all about this story and then at the end of the bible study the person leading it asked everybody to bow their heads in prayer and began their prayer um uh, almighty god we thank you that we're not like that pharisee <laughs> <laughs> we all we all do it we all do it we all do it <laughs> and, and um, <laughs> so you know scapegoating has this enormous and i think extraordinarily damaging history in in, in christendom um that are uh, that derives from a, a story about the crucifixion um that that uh, portrays god as as uh Kind of like a, a cosmic Ebenezer Scrooge, who uh, has has a has a book with numbers in it, and the numbers don't match. And the only way to make the numbers match is to kill his son, so that human beings will somehow be brought to their uh, senses. And um, you know, the story is uh, uh, let's just say it's unfortunately lacking nuance. But it's worse than that. It has it has enshrined the idea that scapegoating is a good thing and that scapegoating should continue. When um, it seems to me the only legitimate form of scapegoating uh, is if you or I, if I choose to allow myself to be scapegoated, 
in order to achieve some better end, particularly if it protects or helps vulnerable people. You know, there are occasions when some people have to step out and take the suffering that might be being directed at somebody else if there is no other option to protect that vulnerable person. But it's not, it's not supposed to be the way we think about uh, life on an ordinary day-to-day basis. And it has created entire political cultures. It has created scenarios where the use of violent language in elected politics is now um, an everyday thing. Uh, and um, we know that beyond the fact that it's unpleasant and distasteful, and along with the fact that it sometimes does actually contribute to real, actual physical harm in the world. But more than that, it just doesn't work. It doesn't actually create peace and security. Scapegoating others, the purification story, does not actually create peace and security. In fact, it, it almost creates an addiction, doesn't it? Uh, every so often, we need a new victim to pour out our accumulated guilt or shame or fear or anxiety or uh, hostility. It be, really becomes a cyclical, uh, habitual story. It does. And if you don't have uh, stories of restorative justice in your culture, it's very easy to go to the scapegoat mechanism because, well, you know, nobody else has funded your culture's imagination to think about different things. You know, there, there's, a, there's a story, a mythic story about the uh, people who would be referred to as pre-Columbian Indians, the indigenous people uh, on uh, Turtle Island. Uh, who could not see, this is a story, it's not a factual story, it's a myth, who could not see the Pinta, the Nina, and the Santa Maria, Columbus's ships as they were coming over the horizon because they'd never seen ships before. What they saw was these kind of like sort of invisible spaces coming over the horizon, right? And that story illustrates what we call a paradigm shift, that like there's a time when something's unthinkable and then there's a time when it's outrageous and then there's a time when people start to go, well, maybe, and then it becomes normalized. Um, so in storytelling, when we tell stories in which something other than the scapegoat mechanism is used against a bad guy, people still feel like their brains are exploding. You know, I, I, I remember the first time I noticed this was in a philosophy tutorial. I was, I was good enough to quit philosophy after one semester because we just didn't, we weren't, we were not intended to have a lifelong relationship philosophy in me. And, uh, we had a tutorial where we, we discussed the lifeboat dilemma, which is a, an age old philosophical dilemma. You get six seats in a lifeboat and there's seven people on board. Who do you throw overboard? And then they tell you that the six people on board are Mussolini, your grandmother, a newborn baby, Elmo from Sesame Street, <laughs> your best friend, your worst enemy, and you. And um, I just instinctively had a response, not because I'm courageous, not because I'm courageous, just because I'd heard, I'd thought about this from listening to other people, that the only person you could throw over is yourself. And then you could, you know, maybe tread water for a while and then, and you know, people respond to courage by by being courageous themselves, actually. And so somebody else might have agreed to tag team 15 minutes each in the water. But I remember when I said that in the philosophy tutorial, people laughed at me. And, and it wasn't because they were not courageous or not kind. It was because it, it interfered with their paradigm 
And when you yeah. see in uh, some of the, the recent comic book uh, superhero movies, some of those movies don't actually kill the villain. And sometimes it's because they want the villain to survive for a sequel so he can be killed in a more spectacular way the next time. <laughs> but on a few occasions, actually, uh, the villain is allowed to survive because the ethical framework of the film is trying to move beyond scapegoating. And it is not saying the villain hasn't done anything wrong. <laughs> um, and, you know, I haven't yet seen a comic book spectacle version of a restorative justice process. Uh, that, you know, ha that movie hasn't been made yet. Uh, but there are, I, I see some signs of the needle moving in the way we talk about enemies, the way we, talk, we try to understand why people do what they do. And that we could, you know, if I was to, to refer back to our last episode on the revolution story, it's not the choice between total destruction of the enemy or doing nothing uh, about injustice. There's, there's steps here that you can, you can discuss and describe and advocate for, even if they're not always going to happen. And I think we have to, it's like we have to rehearse the story of restorative justice loudly and often, more loudly and more often than the story of scapegoating and revenge because the story of scapegoating and revenge is the one that is so deeply embedded in our culture that people take it for granted the paradigm shift i'd want to rehearse would be the first thing you do about the actions of someone who's oppressing art you, you tell them or you ask them to stop <laughs> and sometimes they will <laughs> when when someone is confronted with do you realize you're hurting that person sometimes Someone actually will stop if you ask them. So then you try to use all the nonviolent means at your disposal to stop them, and you might have to physically restrain them to, to stop them uh, from doing this. The second thing is you need, to, you need to make sure that the vulnerable people who they've targeted are currently protected as best as they can be. The third thing is you want to make sure that you are preventing further harm coming to other people. The fourth thing you want to do is, is ask the people who've suffered, what do you need to help you repair, even if full repair is not possible? What do you need? The fifth thing you need to do is accountability for the person who was doing the oppressing or creating the harm. And accountability is not the same thing as vengeance. And accountability includes making amends, and the amends need to be satisfying to the person who was harmed. Um, and then rinse and repeat, do the same thing again. And all the while, look at yourself and ask, where am I maybe doing some of the same things? Or, you know, I'm not currently actively engaged in genocide. I think we can, we're both pretty sure that's true of me. I'm not actively engaged in genocide. But I can character assassinate with the best of them. You know, I can, I can, I can be on that continuum, and I need to look at that and ask myself, how can I move away from the continuum of character assassination to a continuum of dignity and love, even for people I maybe don't like, even for people who might be hurting me. You know, in a certain sense, what we're 
we're inviting people to do is not to make their lives simpler, <laughs> but to give them some clarity on the complexity of life and to see that there are these domination stories out there at work. And then to see uh, there are these revolution or retaliation or revenge stories out there at work. And then to see there are these purification stories out there at work. It doesn't make life simpler, but maybe it gives us enough clarity to try to be a more moral agent, a more peaceful agent in this world uh, when we understand the stories that we find ourselves in. Um, and this purification story, uh, it strikes me, is especially dangerous to people who want to be good. You know, for people who want to be good people, we're, we're that, that desire to be good can then create in us this need, especially when we feel we're failing at being good, to find somebody who looks bad or somebody we can portray as bad and, and lift our, ourselves up. Also, it seems to me, it's a story that can happen among the people who are doing dominating or among the people who are being oppressed. Um, when you have an in-group and us, and and the us of this in-group is feeling some negative emotions. We're feeling defeated, or we're feeling threatened, or we're feeling divided. Internal tensions are tearing us apart. That's when we like to reach for some victim uh, for some minority group to create coalitionary aggression against, uh, to strengthen the the uh, larger us. So ironically, there's a way we can look at this that doesn't have to fill us with a kind of hatred and judgment and disdain, these terrible people living by a purification store. We can say, oh no, this is a very deep temptation. And people who want to be good are in some ways especially vulnerable to it. And the terrible thing about it is you engage in purification and it makes you feel better when you're actually becoming so, so much worse. Well, I, I want to ask you in, in light of that, you know, there's this astonishing statement that Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the uh, Russian dissident writer, uh, said that the line between good and evil does not run between this group and that group, but down the center of every person. And I'd like to ask you to comment on that idea, but also how does that relate to if I am literally about to become the victim of genocide, or if I am literally being targeted uh, because of prejudice um, against, against me on the grounds of of some identity category, some are my minority status. How do you wrestle with the truth of the line between good and evil does not run between one group and another, but sometimes one group really does do bad things. And sometimes yes. one person really does do bad things. And sometimes yes. one group really does do good things. <laughs> and sometimes yes. one person really does do good, courageous and self-sacrificing things. First of all, I loved your story about what happened in that philosophy class, and I can imagine people laughing at you, but what a creative response you had. I'll volunteer to spend 15 minutes in the water in hopes that somebody will, that will create a creative new possibility. Somebody else will volunteer to take their turn, and we can maybe keep taking turns uh, and, and in a way that uh, that 
meets the requirements of the uh, of the test, right? And it seems to me that Solzhenitsyn quote becomes really important here because almost nobody does evil saying, oh, I really love doing evil and I'm such, uh, I excel so much in doing evil. Evil is my specialty. Almost everybody who does evil is sure, has convinced themselves at least that they're doing good um, or that their evil is at least justified because of the even greater evil somebody else is doing. So I, I think th- this becomes a reminder to us that when when people or societies and cultures become go to to depths of depravity and wrong they never thought they would they got there uh they got there by succumbing to some very subtle temptations again and again uh, along the way it it recalls why jesus that famous uh statement from jesus don't try to take the splinter out of your brother's eye when you have a board in your own that this need that you mentioned earlier for self-examination becomes uh, so important. It's another v- value, I think, for developing this kind of depth perception to see the stories at work or x-ray vision to see the story that's going on beneath this or that behavior or statement. How do we hold judgment in a sane way when sometimes one group of people really is perpetuating harm on another or sometimes one individual really is holding more of the power and using it to oppress? That, that's to me another value of these kinds of stories. It it helps me see something that may be going on that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, so if I understand this purification story and I see transgender children and their parents being vilified, it will then motivate me to say, oh, this story is going on. I know how this plays itself out. Um, if I attack the person who is attacking uh, transgender children, and I start calling them names and and tell them they're evil and immoral and wicked, I'm, in a certain sense, inviting them to defend themselves, and I'm giving them an even greater need to prove how innocent and pure they are, which may end up having the opposite effect that I want to have. So, at that point, I have to be creative. I have to show that same creativity you did in that philosophy class, and I have to say, I need to say or do something. I can't just stand idly by while people are being harmed. How can I stand up and make my voice heard um, uh, uh, in a way that will make a difference? There, in, in harm reduction training, there's uh, a, a kind of uh, intervention that a person has to make knowing that it's dangerous, but where they might say, for example, there's a story not long ago of uh, a minority, uh, a person in, in a, r- a religious minority uh, who is on a subway train and somebody else uh, who maybe was having a mental health crisis started attacking that person and venting uh, on them. And another person stood up and intervened and engaged the person in conversation and ultimately in argument. And he did it in pr- on purpose to deflect the anger away from this vulnerable person. So there might be times where I I decide, I think I'll make myself the issue here. Um, uh, I think I'll intervene and just try to disrupt this mechanism uh, that's working.
Is There Life After Doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. There's a wonderful book, um, uh, I believe it's called Nonviolence, the History of a Dangerous Idea. Uh, I think that's what it's called by Mark Kurlansky. And uh, my memory of reading that book was like the last line of that book is basically, here's all these great things that people have done. And if you find that it seems overwhelming uh, or the what about this situation, um, you need to recognize that in all these cases, somebody needed to be the first. Somebody always needs to be the first to do the imaginative thing. And maybe nine times out of 10, the imaginative thing doesn't work or you have to recalibrate it for the next time. Good example in my life was in 2005, a friend of mine uh, went out uh, with some other friends and at several different key spots around Belfast, uh, the main train station, the, the parliament buildings, a couple of other places, they stenciled on the ground the word sorry uh and i believe they did it in two two different ways one was in the colors of the british flag and one was in the colors of the irish flag and it was an it was a piece of performance art uh and the idea was to get the word sorry into public consciousness because it's the least used word in politics and so you know that they, they did it at the main shopping mall so people were literally for several weeks the paint stayed there you had to walk across the word sorry to get in to the shopping mall. And that was a great idea. I remember being struck by it. And then a few weeks later, Pope John Paul II died overnight, the Saturday after Easter 2005, and some anti-Catholic graffiti went up in Belfast um, uh, as, a, as a, you know, a very offensive uh, response to, to John Paul II's death. And some of us went out that night and wrote the word sorry on top of some of the anti-Catholic graffiti. We would not have done that had it not been for my other friend doing this thing a few weeks previously. And uh, it was in my subconscious, the use of this word sorry. We might've done something, but I don't think we would have written the word sorry on top of this graffiti. And then hopefully people hear that story and they do something else. And that's, you know, it may sound obvious, but when you live in a culture where the stories that are repeated most often are the domination stories and the vengeance stories and the revolution stories and the scapegoating stories, you have to start somewhere and someone has to be the one to begin it. Even if all you have is, well, maybe I'll jump overboard for 15 minutes and hopefully a shark won't get me in those first 15 minutes. You don't actually have to know what the next stage is going to be. And it may well be that the other people in the boat say, nice one, thank you. <laughs> and, and nobody joins you. 
But actually, yeah. what's interesting with that, if you, if you were in a lifeboat and you jumped overboard, what would happen over time to at least one other person in the boat is preemptive guilt for how they're going to feel about themselves for the rest of their lives because they once threw somebody out of a lifeboat. <laughs> and so you, you have to sometimes dramatize these realities and use kind of almost absurd examples. The, the main point is that somebody always has to be first. And, so, and maybe today it's you that gets to be first. And maybe all you have to do is you just move the needle one inch. You do something one degree different than what has been done before. And if you do that, boy, you will be joining a deeply honorable tradition of creative nonviolence and of people moving away from um, the human tendency to scapegoating. You will be changing the world for the better. This interruption of a purification narrative in, in process, uh, this creative interruption uh, seems to me to be so powerful. I'm wondering if you have some films that you think depict either the purification process or its disruption. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to limit myself to five movies, which as, as, as you <laughs> okay. and, and regular listeners now know, it's extremely difficult for me. But for the sake of the common good, <laughs> for the sake of the common good, I'll only mention five. The, the first is Wonder Woman 1984. It's the, 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 the second of the recent Wonder Woman films. And the reason I mention it is because it, uh, above, above any other comic book, big spectacle blockbuster, it takes the psychology of the villain seriously, seriously enough to not turn him into a monster and to explain his motivation for his cruel and selfish behavior. Not only that, it gives him an opportunity to confront the consequences of his actions, not just the pain that he's caused to others, but what he's lost within himself. And Diana, Wonder Woman, defeats him not through physical force, but through moral, uh, spiritual authority and simply the power of a story. So that's Wonder Woman 1984. And then four others, uh, an amazing uh, Taiwan, China, Hong Kong co-production uh, called The Assassin, uh, about a young woman who is trained to be an assassin and ultimately refuses to play by the terms of her trainer and refuses to play the game of scapegoating. Uh, an extraordinary film, um, the first film, I believe, uh, produced, directed, and, and uh, made fully by uh, uh, Inuit uh, people, um, indigenous uh, in uh, the land that is formerly known as, uh, as Canada, a film called Atanarjuat, The Fast Runner, which is a film that shows um, there do need to be consequences if someone is posing a threat, and that doesn't have to be revenge, but sometimes you do need to exclude someone for the sake of safety. And when you do that, it's also a source of grief. It does come with lament. There isn't, sometimes there is not a perfect solution here. Atanard, you at the fast runner. Um, and the two last films, a French film called Jean de Florette, which is about what happens when you define the goodness in your world to your family alone and everybody else is a, a threat, an enemy or a competition. And what that does to you when you enact that kind of purification onto others. And finally, a, a, a film of 
great heart and passion. Uh, it's a Swedish film called Together about what it's like to live in a commune. And there's, uh, there's two little pieces of conflict in that one where someone who really just isn't playing by the rules and needs to be told to leave, which is not the same as killing them. And it's not the same as saying you have no <laughs> home to go to. It's just, you can't be here right now. And another uh, character uh, who repairs his life and offers amends for the pain that he's caused to others. And uh, a film that gives a real grounded hope of what this could look like in our everyday lives. So that's a, a Swedish film called Together. Um, what about some biblical stories that connect to the story of scapegoating? Of course, when you have this story in mind, uh, as I said to you years ago, it seems like the gospels get recarbonated. You just, so many things become highly significant for new reasons. And, and one is all of the people that Jesus hangs out with and eats with, the people who are being scapegoated, the people who are being used for somebody else's purification narrative are the people that Jesus humanizes. The story of Zacchaeus, the story of Matthew and his, his tax collector friends, story after story, a leper, a person who we would say has severe psychiatric disorder. The term they used for it then was demon-possessed. In case after case, Jesus humanizes them, uh, approaches them, and one story stands out. It's an interesting story because most scholars agree it probably wasn't in the original version of the Gospel of John, but was laid, uh, later added. It's in John chapter 8. Uh, in today's Bibles, and it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, uh, here is a group of uh, powerful religious men who have evil in their hearts. They're, they're staging this whole thing to get rid of a competitor, Jesus. They're creating coalitionary aggression against Jesus to protect their own religious interests. Um, and they do it by, in a certain sense, sacrificing a young woman who they say was caught in the act of adultery. So many interesting dimensions to the story. Uh, we won't do anything close to a full uh, exploration of the story. But if you read that story in John 8, notice Jesus' physical posture. It's as if he's using his body to draw attention away from the woman and becomes an interruption to a purification narrative uh, that was heading toward a deadly end, and he intervenes. Gareth, I wonder, uh, do you have an exercise or a, a practice that might help us uh, reflect on this story? So, you know, this is, this is heavy stuff to be working with, heavy material to talk, to talk about, you know, ancient, at some level, like prehistoric motivations within human beings. Basically, you know, um, if you don't get out of my way, I'll kill you. Um, and... We have evolved <laughs> and we have, we have more evolving uh, to do. And we got to guard against on the one hand, the mechanism, the mechanism that externalizes blame and leads to uh, perpetuating harm onto others. And then on the other side of the road, there's, there's the, uh, the risk that we can take all the blame onto ourselves or be the ones that say it's all my fault or I deserve um, things that I'm not uh, worthy of or that wouldn't help. These are mythic stories as well. You know, when you invoke 
the Bible, when you invoke Wonder Woman, <laughs> you know, when you when you when you talk about people like uh, Rene Girard and lifeboat dilemmas, you're dealing with um, the realm of the mythic. So I think our response to this can actually be helped if we have a mythic uh, practice. And so this is a practice I learned uh, from some some others. And uh, it's, it's kind of a modification of a practice called the crossroads process. And I'm going to, I'll share it with you now who are listening and then do this in your own time. You know, you can, you can do it in 15, 20 minutes. You can devote substantial time to it. You can do it alone or ask someone to help you with it. And the idea is to think about the person that you know of, they're probably not someone that you actually know. Um, they may be a historical figure. Um, they may be a fictional figure who you believe deals with this question of scapegoating in the wisest way, this question of the purification story in the wisest way, the way that you might want to deal with this yourself, a way that you feel drawn to deal with it, but you're not there yet. Like me, you're not there yet. And, um, and you can use this for other questions of wisdom too, but we're, we're addressing it to purification. The exercise is really simple. Sit on a chair on one side of a room, having put another chair directly opposite you on the other side of the room. Put three objects on the floor between the two chairs that create like a little pathway or little stopping points along the way. And in a meditative uh, practice with just some slow breathing and your eyes closed, Imagine this wisdom figure sitting opposite you. Maybe it's Harriet Tubman. Maybe it's Gandalf. Whoever it is that calls to you from a place of wisdom, who you believe sought to transcend the purification story or the scapegoating story. Imagine them sitting opposite you and get a really good picture of them in your mind. And then imagine yourself sitting in that chair with them as if, that the wisdom figure was a suit of clothing that you could wear, that they were like a cloak you could put on, the wisdom cloak. And I say this with all respect, you know, the Desmond Tutu cloak, you know? And imagine that mingling with you, the Brian McLaren soul, you know? And imagine that for a moment and then ask yourself, what are three obstacles that stand between me and becoming this person that I want to be? Or three questions I would need to answer? Or three steps I would need to take? Or maybe it's one obstacle, one step, and one question. And visualize the little objects that you've put between you and the chair as being that question, that obstacle, that uh, challenge. And when you're ready, get up out of your chair and move toward the other chair and stop by each object, pick it up and decide what you will do. It may well be what you will do is that you're going to tell somebody else about this obstacle and ask for their witnessing of that. Or it may be that there's a simple step you can actually take tomorrow. Or it may be for the next 72 years, I'm gonna devote myself to prayer 
that this thorn in my side will be healed. It's all of these things. It's straightforward and it's impossible. And then, of course, as you move through those three uh, stages, you finally end up sitting in the chair and you try on the clothing, try on the cloak of this wisdom that helps you know what to do instead of scapegoating on the one hand or blaming yourself on the other. And it's a beautiful exercise if you if you try it. I've, I've done it a few times. It helps with all kinds of things. Um, and I invite you to take time uh, to do it in your own time and uh, see where that takes you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Learning How to See. If you're interested in learning more, we encourage you to go to theseventhstory.com where you'll learn about a book that goes more deeply into the seven stories, a book for adults, and also a new illustrated children's book that we hope adults like you can use and give to children to help them learn about these important stories too. Thanks to the Center for Action and Contemplation for all of your support for this podcast. Thanks especially to our wonderful producer, Corey Wayne, and uh, all of his artistry and support. And a special thanks to each of you for listening, for your attention, for your care, for your interest in learning how to see. And if you found this uh, series helpful, I hope you'll share it with someone you know and love. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.